Well, with joy, let's turn to Luke chapter 1. Two weeks ago, we looked at the prologue in the first four verses and saw Luke's purpose of writing to instruct Theophilus, this um, uh, most likely Gentile official of some kind, Roman official, that he would have certainty concerning the things he had been taught about Jesus and the gospel. And then last Sunday, we looked at the birth of John the Baptist being prophesied and the seeming impossibility of Elizabeth getting pregnant because even though they had prayed for it their whole lives, uh, they had now grown past the age of being able to conceive. And yet God, in his grace, but also in his um, keeping his prophetic promises, brings about the conception of John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner of Jesus, coming in almost the uh, likeness or the, um, uh, the pattern of Elijah to foretell the coming of the Messiah and to bring people to repentance and trust in God's promises. This morning we look at verses 26 through 38, where we will see the birth of Jesus foretold, and we were reminded of the parallels that exist between the prophecy of John the Baptist's birth with Elizabeth and the prophecy here of Jesus' birth with Mary. And we'll see how uh, this uh, young girl, you know, barely of the age to even have a child, is able uh, to show great faith, trust, and loving obedience to God uh, that overshadows even Zechariah the priest's ability to trust and believe God's word uh, given to them by this angel, Gabriel. So let's read together, beginning in verse 26, God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word to us. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And we thank God for his word and ask him now to help us to learn it, understand it, and apply it to our lives. <coughs> well, every Christmas, you know, this time of year, God's people and, and many who don't even belong to the Lord look at this story that is often called the Annunciation, or the announcement of the birth of, of Christ. 
And at the beginning, of, at the end of this story, we read about this angel who we've met. We're told it's in the sixth month that God sent the angel Gabriel there in verse 26. And then we're told that the angel departed in verse 38. Angels are, of course, heavenly messengers sent from God. Gabriel came to Mary with a divine message six months after he had appeared to Zechariah with a very similar one. And as I was thinking about this week and preparing, I was just reminded of how Mary sometimes has puzzled Protestants. We sort of don't know what to do with her on some level, right? Mary rarely gets passing notice among a lot of evangelicals along with Protestants, maybe except when we read the Apostles' Creed, for instance. But this is, of course, in contrast to Roman Catholicism, which holds, uh, talks about Mary a lot. Unfortunately, what they do with Mary is bring in a lot of extra-biblical stuff that is just not, not true, not, not biblical, that rose up through you know, tradition or um, speculation, even some uh, blending of uh, pagan cults and that they assigned things that had happened to, in, in those sort of mythology to Mary and adopted it as part of uh, the story of her. Everything from the Immaculate Conception, which is the, the idea that Mary was also free from original sin, but the Bible doesn't speak of that. And in fact, this doctrine wasn't even finalized until 1854 in the Catholic Church. A second doctrine about Mary that is just not biblical is her perpetual uh, virginity. This is contrary to the natural reading of texts like Matthew 125, when it, Matthew tells us that she did not know Joseph uh, intimately until after the birth of Christ. Uh, beyond the fact that Jesus has half-brothers and there have to be some sort of hermeneutical gymnastics done to make those stepbrothers or, or other things that the Bible simply doesn't say. There's also the, uh, the assumption of Mary, which is that body and soul, she was taken into heavenly glory um, the way maybe a guy like Enoch was in the Old Testament. Um, this doctrine, in fact, wasn't officially canonized in Roman Catholic Church doctrine until 1950, in fact. And again, nothing in the Bible to suggest that. Mary, as far as the Bible is concerned, um, we're not told about her death, but we assume she died a, a normal death like anyone else, being taken care of at some point by the Apostle John after Jesus' death and resurrection himself. And finally, and, and maybe even the worst of them, is not so much these weird doctrines, these weird dogmas that grew up about her her, her life, but it is her ongoing role of intercessor and mediatrix that the Roman church uh, purports, that you pray to Mary, that she can intercede for us and mediate for us. And the biggest problem with this is it, well, one, it's, again, it's not in the Bible. It's just not something that we're told to, uh, uh, to do, to pray to any saint or any other person other than to the Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord. But it also sort of begins to call into question our doctrine of the sufficiency of Jesus. Because Jesus is able, he is our mediator, he is our intercessor, the one who clearly the Bible says is praying at the right hand of the Father for his people that we pray to and that he intercedes for us. He is the one mediator between God and man. And to say that we need Mary or any other saint 
that we should pray to them is to say that, well, that praying to Jesus is not sufficient for our needs, that we have to go somewhere else, that this is a job not for Jesus, but for Mary or for Saint so-and-so. And all that is just some really difficult and troubling doctrines that is mixed in with things that we would agree with, with our Roman Catholic friends and family that I know many of us have. But we have to be clear when we talk about Mary that these sort of Roman dogmas and traditions do not have any New Testament support, and yet, maybe partly in reaction to this Roman overreach and Roman false theology, uh, Protestants and evangelicals have sort of just discarded Mary and chosen not to talk about her, not to extol her virtues, maybe because we're afraid of sounding a little too Catholic. But even if Rome has overplayed and created a false theology of Mary, that should not lead us to relegate Mary to the attic of Christian history. We're like, well, she knows she's up there, but we don't bring her out. We don't talk about her. J.C. Ryle, he was right when he wrote this. No woman was ever so highly honored as the mother of our Lord. It is evident that one woman only out of the countless billions, well, he said millions, but we know, you know, billions of human, of the human race could be the means whereby God could be manifest in the flesh. And the Virgin Mary had the mighty privilege of being that one. So the story of Mary's reception of a visiting angel is the positive counterpart, if you will, to the announcement to Zechariah. Zechariah, you will remember, received the message from an angel in the confines of the temple on that great hill in Jerusalem, on Zion, in the holy place, lifting up prayers, burning incense, with the temple furnishings, with the people praying outside. And yet when the angel comes to Zechariah, he responds with doubt. And though Mary certainly has questions about how all this is going to work, she responds in humble and beautiful faith to this announcement. In that earlier story, we were introduced to the birth of the birth story of John the Baptist. He hasn't been born yet, but we've, Elizabeth is pregnant. And now we're brought to the first proclamation that the time has come for the world's Messiah to be born. John the Baptist becomes one of the great prophets and the, the final sort of Old Testament prophet, this bridge between Old Testament prophecy about the coming of Messiah and the actual birth of Jesus Christ. And it is his greatness that Luke uses to show us how wonderful and great John the Baptist was, but the purpose is that in contrast to even John the Baptist, the infinite glory and wonder of Jesus the Messiah shines, overshines him all. That for John, in all his faithfulness to God and his calling from God, was but the forerunner and foreteller sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. And his supernaturally in, uh, given and uh, supernatural conception of his birth and life, well, all this seems to make Jesus and his arrival even more magnificent. Now, one of the more interesting parallels between John and Jesus is at the social level. For the story of John's coming birth that we looked at last Sunday speaks of his high, sat, his high status. Again, think about where, where his story begins, John the Baptist's. It's a temple setting. The announcement by the arch, 
angel Gabriel in the holy place itself. His father, a priest, offering incense with people praying and in the city of David, on Mount Zion, in the temple, steps away from the most holy place where the glory of God and his presence rested upon the mercy seat. The place where atonement was made. With the incense burning, as we would say of some of our liturgical churches, the smells and the bells all going off in that place. And yet, we come to Jesus, and what is his enunciation? Not in Jerusalem. Not in a temple. Not a priestly father. No incense. No throngs of worshipers from beyond the veil. No. A small, poor, relatively insignificant village to an unknown young woman of little national consequence. And yet she and he will demonstrate a wisdom and faith that will tower over that priest and even over John the Baptist. One writer said, Fortunate and forgiven was Zechariah, wonderful and faithful was the mom of Jesus, blessed Mary of Nazareth. And we can say all this. We can, we can be thankful for Mary and her example of faith, even while we reject the overreaches of Rome. Well, let's walk through the text and see just a few things this morning as we kind of examine the story. The first thing we look at is the place. Where did it happen? We see what a humble place Luke depicts there in verses 26 and following. And how unabashedly, I, I, I really like this, just how unashamed the Bible is of the supernatural nature of all of this. Gabriel is sent from God to Nazareth. That there is, at the very beginning of this story, there is the supernatural happening. Angelic visits. Barren women getting pregnant and now a virgin woman conceiving. Supernatural, yes, but not mythological. Not false, but simply beyond the bounds of what is the normal experience of humanity. Because this whole account is riddled with actual people, real places. This is not never, never land, but it is Nazareth in Galilee to Mary and Joe, a carpenter and his betrothed. Where is Galilee? Well, it's north of Jerusalem, about 70 miles or so, this whole region that Nazareth lies in. And one might say Gabriel was not sent to the you know, orthodox, significant, important Judea, but to a little crossroads town, a place of trade and, and contact with the world. It was on a Nazareth, and Galilee was a place where the Roman roads went through, where traders came from Rome and from Egypt in the south, but they also connected from the north and east, from places like Persia and Syria. It was a place where people were told in Isaiah 9-2, walked in darkness, in that text that Nevin read for us, we see that it refers to Galilee of the nations. But if you know anything about the Jewish people, they weren't that fond of the nations. And yet that was the place that it was called because it was a crossroads for the nations. It was the northern part of Palestine. Foreign trade and Roman soldiers often were passing through their villages. And a lot of the economy, as we look at early Jewish sources, seems to have been built on the fact that there was traffic coming through the area. 
Therefore, Nazareth was in Jewish eyes a place where, well, things, suspect things took place because the population couldn't have remained pure and separate from all the other nations. And so, yeah, they're maybe not like the Samaritans. They're not that bad. They're even farther north, right? But they're not like the, you know, pure bloods down in, in Jerusalem, you know. Those like Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, that's who lives in Jerusalem. But those Galileans, they're kind of backwoods people. They're the rednecks of uh, the outskirts of Jerusalem. And they're in no man's land up there. Podunk villages, whatever <laughs> phrases you want to use. Not only this, but in Galilee, he specifically comes to Nazareth, which was not the largest town. Galilee itself, a lot of people think, had a population anywhere from fifteen to 30,000 people in the area. Nazareth, a town never mentioned in the Old Testament one time, never mentioned by Josephus in his history of the Jewish peoples, never written in any early Jewish literature of the time period, and a population that may not have grown beyond four or 500 people in the actual vicinity of the town. A relatively obscure town, maybe not with the best reputation, because in John 1, you know, we hear, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Whatever that means, however they're getting at that, either just remarking on its obscurity or remarking of, you know, the town being, having a reputation of sinfulness. But the point is, the angel did not come to announce the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, to that temple where God dwelt among his people in a special way. He didn't go to the capital city, the city of David. No, Gabriel was sent to a humble home in unimportant Nazareth, which was situated in despised Galilee. And this is the way God works. He works in the obscure. He works in the out of place. He works out in the deserts. He works with the despised. He works through the barren. He works through the hungry and the poor. And he often rejects the arrogance and pride of the rich and the important people of the world. Well, that's the place. But let's zoom in on the person that he comes to. That's number two, the person in verse 27. Because the message was given to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now again, it's interesting that before we get her name, we get his name. Because again, this is the way she would have been regarded in their culture. She would have been that girl who's engaged to the village carpenter. That girl who's engaged and betrothed to be married to Joseph. It doesn't have the modern context where we would see this as some kind of chauvinistic thing, but it is, again, I think, hinting at and pointing to the fact that Mary is just an ordinary, obscure young woman, probably a teenager at the time, anywhere from 13 to 18, but our guess is probably on the very younger end of that. People were married very young in those days, and it's unlikely that she had ever traveled very far from the area except maybe to go to Jerusalem a few times to go to the feasts. She was very likely a normal girl who lived an ordinary life and engaged again to old Joe, who's a carpenter. Which, by the way, in, if you do linguistic studies, you know, carpenter actually may mean stone worker. He may be a mason because it's a kind of a generic word. So, you know, we always think of Joseph building tables and chairs and stuff. He actually might have been some kind of a mason, a stone mason. Um, so that's kind of interesting. But regardless, he just has a normal job. Again, he ain't the priest. He's not the mayor. He ain't the governor of the region. He's simply Joe the carpenter and his wife Mary. Right? They sound like a couple that lives in New Jersey, right? Oh, Joe and Mary down from Nazareth. Yeah, nice kids. 
And yet to these parents, Gabriel comes and announces that, hey, in your household is going to be the Messiah, the one waited for from generations past. Now they're betrothed. She's betrothed to Joseph. And, and a lot of you know this betrothal in first century Judaism meant a lot more in those days than it would even today. Today, if you break off an engagement, it's sad and it's painful, but it's not like crazily uncommon. It's not filled with cultural taboo. We don't shun people who broke off engagements. In fact, we usually say, well, if you weren't sure that you wanted to be married to each other, it's probably a good thing that you did that now so that you didn't have to get divorced. But in the first century, to be betrothed was a lot more complicated and a lot more formal of an arrangement than an engagement is today. In Mary's day, betrothal was binding. It lasted a whole year before the marriage was performed, in fact. And the couple would make solemn promises and vows to each other at a formal betrothal ceremony. The father of the bride would often have some sort of a dowry to be paid. There was money exchanged. All this happened. And in many ways, the young couple were already considered to be husband and wife to their neighbors and to their families. The only difference was they actually didn't live together most of the time during times of betrothal. And there was certainly no question of intimacy until they were married at the end of their betrothal period. And the law was actually pretty strict regarding this. That if there was the slightest question of immoral behavior, which is why there was a year period, it was almost like a testing period for the, the young couple, then the law would prescribe that the woman could be stoned to death. Although, in fact, on rare occasions that unfaithfulness did occur, the husband could alternatively give his wife a bill of divorce to get out of the betrothal. And this is the situation that, of course, Mary and Joseph are going to find themselves in. We're also told that Joseph and Mary, though they are sort of obscure, they are from an interesting family because they're both descendants of great King David. Now we read that and we go, oh wow, but this is many years after David and a lot of people were descendants of King David. They were in that line. So it's not as though, you know, in Nazareth they had some sort of, you know, people didn't walk by Mary or Joseph's house and go, oh, you know, they're related to David. It's like, yeah, because like half of our cousins are related to David in some way. So it's not like it's way unusual, but we are told this. Why? Of course, because this connects to prophecy, that the Messiah would be born in the line of David. And Mary here is, and Joseph are, are told to be his descendants. This is why they will travel to Bethlehem, to the city of David, to register for the census. Joseph appears as a direct descendant of David in the genealogy of Jesus that we'll see in the third chapter of Luke. And Mary is listed with Joseph in Matthew's list in chapter 1. We're ultimately told that Mary is a virgin, which is, of course, in line with her status of betrothal to Joseph. Now, there are critics of the Bible who will point out that the Greek word here, it's the word parthenos, it comes probably from, uh, the, like, parthenon, it comes from Athena stuff, and she's the, uh, you know, she would have you know, these virgins that would attend her in the temple. And so that this word in Greek is a generic term that refers to young, likely teenage girls or, or young women, maybe we would translate it. And so they say, you know, Christians just made up this stuff about the virgin birth later because the word parthenos is just more of a generic term for a young woman. Now, 
to be intellectually honest, we say, yes, that, that term parthenos does have a, a generic primary meaning that can refer to just young women. And yet, it has a secondary meaning, which is of a virgin, because often young women were virgins before they got married, and in fact, once they got married, almost, I don't think anywhere in the Bible is the word parthenos used of a married woman, because they will say a wife. There's a word for wife in Greek, and that's what would be used. Or there's other not-so-pleasant terms for those who are not virgins but not married as well. Beyond this, Mary herself, in verse 34, uses the same word parthenos to describe her wonder of how this birth would take place. And it's in the very same context, in the very paragraph of our text. And if she only means that she's just a young woman by this, why would the concept of giving birth be so befuddling to her just as a young woman? Because young women can have babies. So clearly Mary, in verse 34, means virgin, and therefore the same meaning is what Luke has in mind here in verse 27. Now there's some really interesting stuff going on here behind the scenes that again, in Hebrew and Greek, you might, uh, we might put some of these connections together. And this is all sort of loose stuff, but it's interesting to think about. There is a Hebrew word, there's a, several Hebrew words that are used in the Old Testament to refer to young women and, and virgins in particular. And there is a Hebrew word, that's uh, the word Alma, and that means, again, young woman or virgin. But there are several key places in the Old Testament where that word Alma is used to refer to some young women of marriageable age, and the connections are quite interesting. And in several of those places, the Jewish translators of the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament used during the time of Jesus, they decided to translate Alma from Hebrew with the word Parthenos in Greek. The first of those references is in Genesis, and it's in reference to Rebekah, who was the wife of Jacob, who clearly was a virgin of marriageable age when she gets married to Jacob. Interesting about Rebekah is what? She was barren for a long time before she has children. The second use is in Exodus, and it references Moses' young sister, uh, probably Miriam, although she's not named in the early part of um, of Exodus, but most people think that's the same sister. And she was likely in her teens but unmarried because in chapter 2 of Exodus, she's still at home helping her mom, and she helps protect Moses as he is sent down the river and eventually into Pharaoh's house. A third place that the word is translated Parthenos is in Proverbs, where the writer is describing three types of women who lived in the king's harem. They were wives, concubines, and almas. Well, what type of women weren't married and weren't concubines who would have been in the harem of the king? Well, they would have been those who were young and virgins, but who weren't old enough to be concubines or married. Because if they weren't virgins, they would have been considered concubines, right? Or wives. There are a few places in the Psalms and Proverbs where a similar Hebrew word is used to describe some virgin musicians, probably young girls, like the way we have boys' choirs. They seem to have had some young girls who were musicians at the time. And then eventually the same word is also used in Isaiah 7, verse 14. And of course, Isaiah there is just a few chapters before the, uh, uh, the, the section that we read earlier. This is another one of those prophecies that we read around Christmas. And in chapter 7, what do we read? We read, 
the Lord speaking to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven, verse 12. Ahab doesn't want to ask. And what is the sign that is given in verse 14? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. There's another place. Now the Septuagint, this Greek translation of the Old Testament, those of you who came to our study on Sunday nights that we just wrapped up would have heard this, but the Septuagint, this Greek translation of the Old Testament was done between 285 and 244 B.C. So this translation was completed a couple hundred years before the events that are taking place, hundreds of years before Luke is writing, hundreds of years before anybody even knew what a Christian was, more than a hundred years before Jesus was even born at the, very, at the very latest. So there's no way for Christian scholars to have reinterpreted this. These were Jewish scholars that were put together to translate this, and they see in Isaiah the translation into Greek of Parthenos. They see this as being a virgin, not a generic young woman. So think about this. Hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, prophecy had established the supernatural and miraculous manner of the birth of the Savior. And that prophecy came there in Isaiah from Isaiah to Ahaz, the king of Judah. In that story, Ahaz is being besieged in Jerusalem. And there's a coalition that's formed against them from Pekah, who's the king of Judah, and, um, uh, or, or uh, yeah, Pekah, the king of Israel, and Razin, who's the king of Syria. And they're going to get rid of the family line of David. And once news of this sort of conspiracy to destroy them gets to Ahaz in the house of David, he's really afraid. So the Lord calls Isaiah to go in there and to meet with King Ahaz and reassure him that this is going to fail, that God is going to keep his promise and there's going to be a, a, a Messiah, a ruler on the line of David. And so God tells Ahaz through Isaiah that he would be faithful to his covenant promises to David in the house of Judah. But he also tells him, tells Isaiah, ask the king to ask for a sign and I'm going to provide that. But Ahaz says, I won't ask, nor will I test the Lord. He ends up actually rejecting God's word, and instead he turns to the king of Assyria for help. And in consequence of that, Ahaz earns God's discipline, the reprimand of Isaiah, who communicated to inform him by prophecy that even though he was faithless, God was still going to provide a sign to Judah, but it would not be a sign in their lifetime, it would be a sign for the future, and that sign would be a virgin-born son who would be the king. So there's some really interesting stuff going on here in the Old Testament. And there's interesting parallels with Elizabeth. That while Elizabeth would not have been a virgin, she keeps herself hidden, we're told in that previous section. For six months she hides away before Mary eventually goes to visit her. Now that same Hebrew word Alma, if you go to its etymology or to the root of where it comes from, it has this weird lit, like hyper-literal meaning that eventually becomes virgin, but the original meaning of Alma means to hide away. And it was the idea eventually that virgins were considered hidden away in their homes, hidden away until they could be married. And it's actually, it may sound like a weird concept, but until, you know, I think they still do these things in the, in the South where they have these big cotillions and, and uh, you have your... You know, you have your coming out parties, you know, uh, a lot of Hispanic families have quinceañeras at certain ages. It's the age where you sort of present a young lady to the world. 
And that happened back in those days away. So they're hidden away until they're ready to be presented to the world. Now they're ready to be married. They're ready to have families. And here, Elizabeth kind of hides away until the really one who is hidden away, Mary, comes to greet her. And virgins and the barren, Rebecca, Mary and Moses' sister used by God to hide away the identity of Moses, virgins in the court of a king hidden away to be served by eunuchs lest their chastity be compromised. All of these just shadows, just whispers in comparison to the glorious announcement of the Messiah whose birth and message had been hidden away until the time was right for him to be on the stage of history to bring salvation to the world. Now again, all those are not necessarily the meaning of the text, but they're just interesting ideas to think about what is going on in the background, how God is using the barren, the hidden away, to bring forth the message of the gospel to the world. Well, we've seen the place and we've seen the people. Now we start getting into the the meat of it. And the first thing that we hear is the greeting. The greeting. This angel comes and says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now surely Mary had never seen an angel before, but she evidently believes in their existence. She's probably afraid because he tells her not to be afraid. But Elizabeth came to realize that she had been greatly favored by God herself in being given the gift of a son. She was barren and she had children, but here Gabriel makes it super clear to Mary that she is favored. Gabriel had to announce himself to Zechariah in order to rebuke his unbelief, but he doesn't need to do with Mary who is told that God both greatly favors her and is with her. In every sense, she could be called the most favored woman, again, in all of history, for she had been chosen to bear the Messiah, and it's impossible to be more special than that, other than maybe to be the Messiah himself. When he says the Lord is with you, this promises God's continuous presence in her life. God is present in all of our lives, and he's always with us, never to leave us or forsake us, but this is a, a strong sense of being with you. This is... Sort of like what an angel greeted Gideon saying in Judges chapter 6, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Meaning that he would be with him in the battle. He would be with him in the conflict. He would be with him in empowering him to serve God. And for Mary it means that God is going to be especially present with her throughout her life's calling of raising the Messiah and watching over that which God is doing with him and through him. So this favored one, the one who finds favor. And this is not a reward for Mary, even though she seems to be a a young woman of great faith and maturity beyond her years. But finding favor is the way of God saying, you've been chosen by me for this special task. Mary is, interestingly, greatly troubled by this greeting, isn't she? She doesn't hear these words and go, oh, yippee. Because again, just to mention this, this is, this is a, the normal reaction of people when they come into contact with angelic beings. It's a scary thing. It's not like these you know, heavenly tourism books that come out. They're just hogwash of people that seem to have you know, hung out with the angels and hung around. It's not like TV shows. You know? It's not Michael Landon walking on the highway to heaven, right? These are terrifying experiences that these people endure, and that's why they have to be constantly told, don't be afraid, it's okay, Mary. But she's greatly troubled at the implications of what it means to be favored of God and chosen and to be with her. What's going to happen to me? What kind of greeting might this be, she says in verse 29. And really, she's going to stay sort of confused throughout her interaction with Gabriel, and that's all perfectly natural. 
Nothing like this had happened in centuries. And how could she not be in shock? In verse 30, the angel soothes her and says, Do not be afraid, Mary. And he reiterates, For you have found favor with God. God is watching over you. He He has set his affection upon you. God is thoroughly pleased with you. And she feels quite unworthy, as we will see in her Magnificat in verses 46 to 55. But God wants her to know that his special grace and mercy are operating in her life. The favor she has in the Lord's eyes will be seen in the incredible task that he's entrusting to her, bearing his son and raising the Savior of the world. Well, now we get into the heart of the message in verses 31 to 33. As he brings his son into the world, God begins with a place that's small, people who are obscure, and then through Gabriel's announcement, Luke provides us with this giant kingdom perspective that sort of explodes on the scene. As he ties the coming of Jesus as a child to Old Testament promises, to David, to the royal line. And he tells us several things about Jesus. He shall be great, shall be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give, him, give to him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Think about those statements. He shall be great. He will have uh, power and influence. He, there, there will be uh, something great about him. He will have a greatness. John was told that he would be, you know, John the Baptist, that he would be great among men, but Jesus is just going to be great uh, among the universe, it seems. He shall be called the Son of the Most High. This is a, a reference likely to his divinity, that he is the Son of God. He is different. He's, he's not just an ordinary human being, though he will be fully human, but he will also be divine, the Son of the Most High. This is not a, a phrase that's used of, any, of anybody else. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. He will be a king. He will be a king. But he will be a different kind of king, for he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Not just the line reigning forever, but he will reign forever. How's that going to work? And of his kingdom there will be no end. So this coming child, who will be called Jesus, the name that means God saves in Hebrew, Yeshua or Joshua, It's connected to the promise at the heart of the Davidic covenant, God's covenant with David. God had told David in 2 Samuel 7 that your throne shall be established forever. And then in Psalm 89, we're told that David's line will endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Micah 4, Daniel 7 also speak of the unending nature of the reign of the lineage of David. So Gabriel repeats God's promises to Mary. David's descendant, upon David's throne, ruling over Jacob's people forever. This is going to be your kid. I mean, that's quite the announcement. None of us would dare to put that on our birth announcements, right? You know, future king. You know, unless your name's Charles, I guess then you can say. Announcing the birth of William, future king. But that happens, right? When... William and Kate had their first child, little George. What did everybody say when he was born? Ah, the future king. But this is a king that will have no end. Charles will reign and he'll die. William will reign and he'll die. George will reign and he'll die. Mary, your little child is going to be king forever. Is it any wonder, she asks, how in the world is this all going to take place? That's the dilemma, isn't it? This was an old promise. And at the moment in Israel, there was not a reigning Davidic king. 
There hadn't been one for about 600 years. These people had been under Babylon and Persia and Syria and Greece and now Rome. And it seemed that the odds were in favor of this ain't going to happen. Had the promise failed? Gabriel says those hundreds of years don't matter because God's promises trump the whims of human history. So how did Mary respond to this breathtaking news? Well, she doesn't doubt it. She's not like Zechariah. She doesn't demand a sign. She doesn't challenge the facts. But she is confused about how it's going to work. And she asks a question about the method of all of this. How will this be since I am a virgin? A perfectly natural question to ask in the midst of all of this. And this is where we get, you know, number five, the explanation from the angel. Does the angel rebuke her for asking this question? He doesn't, which is our first key to that. Her question is different than that of Zacharias. No, what does he do? He explains how the miracle would take place. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. More titles, as Nevin pointed out to us, of Jesus. Holy, completely set apart, different from anyone else that's ever been born. The Son of God, again, the Son of the Most High. And the Holy Spirit coming upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And you ask, how does this work, Kenny? How, did, how does, the, how does the, this conception happen? How does within the womb of Mary, God create a sinless, a new sinless human being who is divine and human, fully human? Does he have the genetic DNA of, of, of Mary and Joseph that somehow God puts in there? And, and how does the... Uh, the uh, hypostatic union take place between the divine nature of Christ and the human nature of, of Jesus, this man from Nazareth. Because we know in, in the confession and the creeds that they're, they're not mixing of the natures, they're not a blending of the natures, two distinct natures, but in one person who was divine from all of eternity, the, son, the, the eternal Son of God, and yet now taking on human flesh. And my answer to you is, I have no idea how all that works. That we, in a lot of ways, are like Mary. That we come to this and go, okay. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The closest language we have that in the Old Testament is the Shekinah glory of God enveloping the, 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 the cloud and the, the glory of God, whether a cloud of fire or smoke, enveloping Moses, enveloping the tabernacle overshadowing them, coming around them, the presence of God. God's coming, and his presence is surrounding her and is going to miraculously create a, a, a child. And the reason we probably aren't given any more than that is because we can't understand it. It's a miracle after all, isn't it? This is the work of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And so we have all three members of the Trinity here. We have the Father sending this message. He's talking about his presence overshadowing Mary, that the Holy Spirit is going to be the power of God to do this, and that the person, the human life that will be created to be the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, there's the second person in the Trinity. So you have this miraculous thing that's going on that kind of makes our heads explode, right? Mary would be enveloped in the Holy Spirit, and God himself the second person of the Trinity would gain a human body and grow within her body. There was no intervention of any human being 
This child would be born sinless. He, was, he would be born holy, set apart. And we know Jesus never sinned. The only person ever born after Adam and Eve without sin infecting them. And unlike Adam and Eve, he lived a perfect life. And without skipping a beat, he brings up the case of Mary's relative. And I think he does this as a way to comfort because, you know, this angel knows that Mary is kind of having a panic moment. How is this all going to happen? What does this mean for me? And he lovingly, God lovingly, I just love how God is so tender with his children that he gives her even more than she asked for. How will this be? And he kind of tells her, but it doesn't answer her questions. You know, I'm a virgin. How, how can I have a baby? Well, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. The Spirit of God will come upon you, and you will give birth to a son. Okay, now no more questions. I get it. And he says, look, you know Liz, your cousin, who couldn't have kids and is past the age of being able to bear children? She's going to have a baby. Remember how I said last week that in a way, even though it was a punishment on Zechariah, the fact that the angel said, you're not going to be able to talk, and then he isn't able to talk, is almost, along with being a little bit of a punishment, a discipline, it's also a reminder that God keeps his word. The fact that he said you're not going to talk, and he, didn't, he wasn't able to talk, is the first indication that, yeah, just like I said, you wouldn't be able to talk and you can't. So I also said that she was, your wife was going to have a baby, and she's going to. And then he uses the story of Elizabeth, unable to have a child, and, having, and now pregnant with child. He uses that story to encourage Mary about her own inability to give birth. And he says, even if, if I can do it for Elizabeth, surely you believe I can do it for you. This is what God is doing. So Gabriel takes Mary back to Elizabeth, who everyone had called barren, but now six months pregnant. Enough that when she reveals herself to Mary, she will be clearly pregnant. And then Gabriel takes us beyond Elizabeth and back to Genesis in verse 37, a reference, sort of a paraphrase of Genesis 18, 14, which says, is anything too wonderful for Yahweh? And the word wonderful in Genesis, wonderful, doesn't mean like, yoo-hoo, wonderful. It's full of wonder, meaning Supernatural, miraculous. So it's as if after mentioning old Elizabeth's fertility, Gabriel takes Mary back to postmenopausal Sarah in the Old Testament, who conceived Isaac again, like Elizabeth, not because she was able, but because it's what God had promised. What an explanation. Traces the history of Israel and the birth of these three children. And what's her response? This is where we end this portion of the story. Oh, she provides us with a great response, doesn't she? She calls herself the servant of the Lord and says, let it be to me according to your word. Mary's total surrender to God's will sets her apart from Zechariah and countless others. She says, I'm just the Lord's servant. She recognizes, I don't know why this is happening, but I'm here to serve the Lord. That's how she viewed herself, as a servant, a bondservant of, of God. She doesn't understand all that's going to happen, and she doesn't understand all how it's going to happen. But she places herself fully in God's hands. 
submits herself fully to his will and says, and says, let it be to me according to your word. She trusted in the word of God and said, if that's what you say is going to happen, then let it be. 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 Or almost amen. And let it, be, let it happen the way you said. If that's what God wants. Whatever God has in store. And that could include a lot of personal pain for Mary. She is willing to allow God's purposes to be brought to completion. And when the angel left, this plan is in motion. You know, we're often very familiar with these Advent texts, and our familiarity may tend to lessen or deaden our appreciation of them. But Mary was going to count the cost. In one sense, was this a privilege or a punishment she might have felt apart from God's moving? She was jeopardizing, for all she knew, her security with Joseph, her betrothal, her ability to even ever be married and ever have any other children other than this wonderful gift. What was Joseph going to say? What was he going to do? Just tell him the truth and everything will be all right. Sure. In her heart, there must have been questions and fear. And For all she knew, she might be deserted and despised. Wrongly so. But that might be what happens. By God's grace, that isn't happened. But probably a lot of people did talk. But even if she doesn't face the pain in her relationship with Joseph, she's going to face the pain of losing Jesus one day, watching him die on the cross, be executed. So far as she could tell, she was being asked to risk everything that gives stability to a young woman in first century Nazareth. And yes, she submits and calls herself the servant of the Lord. What a picture of faith for us to say whatever God wants to happen I submit to you whatever your word says let it be according to your word and let me be your servant the Christian life can sometimes rightly be summarized in that response to Gabriel it is a God-centered believing thinking living faith that she manifests and a humble service that she commits herself to that is the very heart of of a believing response to the gospel. Because if we believe the gospel, that we are sinners deserving of God's wrath and punishment, and yet Christ in his mercy has come and redeemed us, took upon himself our punishment, the, one, the punishment and the wrath of God that we deserved, he took upon himself so that we might have forgiveness of our sins and everlasting life. If we believe that, if we're trusting in that, then our whole life has been reoriented around God and his word. And we begin to serve others in humble, self-denying ways. And when we do it, we find that this ultimately is not a burden. There may be suffering, but even in that suffering, there will be everlasting joy. And it's a freeing self-denial. And all the freedom that the world promises us in violation of God's word is in fact slavery and bondage. And slavery and bondage, servant uh, hood to Jesus is actually freedom. And we're the only ones around who are really free. Right? Every time the elections happen, I think about this, right? And we have to be careful we don't get caught up in this. 
Elections happen regardless of which side any person in the world is on. If the person they want to get elected, people are like, yeah, this is going to change things. And if the people they don't want to be elected, it's like, oh, this is going to ruin our lives. And there may be good things that happen, and there may be bad things that happen, regardless of an election that happens. But the world is in bondage to the whims of politicians, and to the whims of governments, and the whims of, of people in this world. And that's why they live and die by these things, because they're in bondage to them. They're enslaved to thinking that their fate ultimately has anything to do with what somebody in Washington says or does, or what someone down on Capitol Hill in Salt Lake City says or does. When only Christians know the freedom of saying, it doesn't matter who gets elected, really. It doesn't matter what policies they, they, they enact, though we urge for and, and, and fight for and seek to influence them for things that are godly. But ultimately, our circumstances don't affect our, our position before the Lord. We ought to be like Mary and say, whatever you desire to come to pass, let it be. And let me be your servant. We're not in bondage to these things like the world is. So you want to let, live and act and think like a Christian at Christmas? Well, don't be in bondage to consumerism. Don't be in bondage to this world's way of thinking. But be freed by being the servant of the King of kings and Lord of lords who came in this obscure way in order to make this glorious announcement of the gospel and to be sure that it is a work of God and not of man. How will it all happen? Well, that's the story of Luke's gospel that we'll be setting together as we continue working through this book. But thinking like a Christian at Christmas is a pretty good place to start to see what Jesus did for us even in the way that his birth was announced. And may we emulate Mary's faith and her commitment to her God in the way that we respond to Jesus this Christmas. So let's pray and thank him for that. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Mary's faith-filled response to your word. And we pray that we would emulate her faith, that she becomes an example to us. She wasn't a perfect person. She wasn't sinless, surely, but that young girl showed a measure of faith that was far beyond that of a priest in the temple, serving in the temple, and yet she's a servant of the Lord. That she becomes an example for Zachariah and Elizabeth, just as she becomes an example for us. And it's the fact that her example is to trust in your word and to look to love King Jesus. So we are grateful for Mary. And we pray for those who are entrapped by false ideas about her and think that looking to her, not as an example, but actually as a mediator, is the way to find happiness. No, let's, like, like Mary, let's look to Jesus to be the author, finisher, the one mediator between God and man, our one intercessor sitting at your right hand, even now interceding for us, his people. And may Mary's life and faith simply be an example of faithfulness to us. The way Paul's is, the way Peter's is. All imperfect people and yet pointing us to the life of a believer. But ultimately, Father, may we see Jesus Christ and his birth, his, his Davidic lineage, satisfying prophecy, his, his humanity, so that he would be a perfect substitute for us. His miraculous birth, 
foretold in prophecy and now revealed in the pages of the New Testament for us. We're thankful for this story because in it, we can have certainty of the things we've been taught. So give us more certainty this morning as we leave than, when we, than we had when we came. And a love for Jesus that overflows in wonder, love, and praise for what he has done. And may you give us the joy of this season because it is the joy of this announcement of the birth of this little baby boy in an obscure village to an obscure family who would be the savior of all who would believe from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And how grateful and how filled with joy despite our many sorrows we can be in this very moment because of what had happened to Mary and Joel in Nazareth. How we thank you, how we praise you, in Jesus' name, amen.